Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In recent months, cycling, along with many other sports, businesses and institutions, has been trying to address its lack of diversity. From the pinnacle of the pro scene downwards, cycling has been, and in many ways still is, predominantly white and male. So what can we do to change that, to open up cycling as a sport and a way of life to a wider selection of people? And what are the barriers? That's the theme of the latest edition of Rouleur magazine, issue 106. And we're reflecting that on this podcast, starting with the thoughts of a random selection of racers and spectators at the recent Thundercrit track event in London. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Hi, my name is Rose and I'm from Kent originally. I live in London now. And how are we going to make cycling better, Rose? Um, make it more inclusive, encourage more women to cycle and to make infrastructure better. Repair the roads and make segregated proper cycling lines that are clearly marked. Uh, it's been more diversity to cycling. I feel like um, over the past couple of years it's getting much better and I believe it can get to the point where just everyone just... Cycling is just... It's just the sport, man. Like everyone's, everyone's able to do it, you know? Increased representation um, across the board, so more black and brown people in cycling and also um, more opportunities for women. Uh, we make cycling better by making it more accessible. Make it more inclusive because I know a lot of people want to get into cycling and they feel scared because it's like they see the super bikes and they see like the Tour de France and they think they need to weigh like 10 kilograms and like, everything's got to be carbon and it's got to be speed and skin tight everything. And when I tell them I cycle, they're like, Really? It's like, no, nah, dead serious. It's like, dude, anybody can come. Just bring yourself, bring your bike. You'll slowly upgrade it. You ain't got to fork out a mortgage deposit off the jump. You can do it slow. It's a project. By uh, implementing and improving uh, sustainable transport infrastructure so people can cycle safely and making sure that infrastructure is accessible for disabled cyclists. Trans inclusion and cycling, I think, would make the sport better. Um, I want everybody to be able to race and ride with um, whatever category they see um, fit and they're comfortable in. Looking at the spread, because cycling is 95%, you know, hugely white, very male, and the like, opportunity is there. Like, there's obviously other groups that we need to bring into cycling, but they get drowned out a lot of the time because of the overwhelmingness of the rest of the audience. As a queer woman, um, I'm conscious that there are kind of a lot of us who cycle, but we're not really represented in any cycling clubs um, or in mainstream cycling. I mean, you only have to look at the Peloton and um, in this year's tour where there are no LGBT athletes. So creating a culture of more inclusion 
um, for people of diverse gender and sexualities would be great, I think. I think you've just got to show people how much joy it can bring to your life. Some voices there from the Thundercrit track event at London Turnhill Velodrome this summer. Thea Smith is a coach and youth cycling development officer at the track. She's charged with attracting a wider range of young participants into the sport. She's also started running skill sessions at the velodrome for non-binary and trans people. That came about through her role with Velociposse, a cycling club with a difference. So Velociposse um, began as a women's only team, actually, but now um, we're much more inclusive and we're actually really pushing for a lot more inclusion for um, non-binary and trans people as well to join us. So it's kind of, it's more it's more of a club for people who, who kind of don't see themselves fitting in with a traditional club and maybe who, who don't identify as cis male rather than women's only. Um, my journey started there, really, although actually it's kind of entwined with here. I think I came to my first track session at Hernhill Velodrome in 2017 and didn't know anything really about anything to do with cycling at that point. Joined the club based on, I think, just a chance encounter with somebody. Through the club, kind of fell in love with cycling and actually trained as a coach quite quickly. I think within a year of joining the club, I was training as a coach. One thing led to another and I became development officer in the club as well as coach. And through that, I then kind of got this role at Hern Hill, which is youth development officer. So my role really is to kind of increase the diversity and opportunities for young people to ride um, at Hern Hill Velodrome. Um, so a big part of that is reaching out to schools and youth groups to try and sort of introduce a lot more kids to come here, um, but also thinking about the facilities that we have, the kind of um, opportunities uh, that we create and different kind of sessions that we might want to run or how we could do things slightly differently to welcome more people um, and make it kind of a little bit less of an intimidating environment to walk into because <laughs> as you know uh, it's sort of you I always say you could you could pass by on the street outside your whole life and never realize that we're here so as soon as you sort of turn in the driveway you kind of walking down this really long driveway there's not many clues as to what's around the corner and, and you kind of come into this space and there's no reception there's no <laughs> there's no one to tell you what you should be doing it's everyone kind of <laughs> seems to know what they're doing yeah so when you don't know it's um it's definitely kind of like what is going on so yeah just just trying to kind of address yeah so many different barriers to cycling not just societally and everything but also you know within our own space how do we make it more accessible a lot of people who've been cycling for a long time um, will find it surprising that people do feel intimidated uh, by the sport or feel that it's not inclusive. You've you know, been doing it for a relatively short time. What were the sort of barriers? What was it that maybe put you off? Yeah, I remember, I mean, I, you know, I have so many regrets about not coming here sooner. It was something that I was aware of and I knew that there were women's sessions happening, but you know, the only contact I'd really had with track cycling or awareness of it was, you know, from high level things like the Olympics. So, you know, you kind of see that and you're like, well, I want to try it out, but I, I'm not going to be good enough. So, you know, uh, I just never kind of was brave enough to to come and, and try it, even though, you know, I was commuting on my bike 
for years and years and years. So <laughs> I think it's that representation, really, where you don't see yourself. You know, there wasn't many women on the cycling around London, you know. Several, it's better now, but certainly several years ago, yeah, just in the media, you, you didn't really see it at all either. So representation is, is a huge barrier. Cost as well, you know, kind of. <laughs> I had an art degree and I was kind of muddling my way through my 20s and even... Uh, and, you know, bikes are expensive, so that's a huge barrier as well. And, and not just for me, but for a lot of people. I think I think it's easy to forget um, how expensive it is to get into this sport. <laughs> Do you think it is getting better, though? It's difficult to say. It's almost like, I mean, I think so, yes, because I'm more plugged into it now. So, you know, and I see, you know, magazines definitely doing more things and cycling clubs kind of starting to think about how they could be better as well but you know I say that from very much like an insider perspective now so it's it's difficult to know whether or not from an outside perspective it is more welcoming <laughs> all we can do is kind of for example with the club we've tripled in size over the past year actually since the pandemic in part due to I think just many more people picking up a bike for the first time and thinking actually yeah I'm going to do this not just for commuting but for fun and then oh well maybe there's some other people out there who want to do this for fun as well and then they find Velocity Posse yeah we we work hard to kind of share what we do to make it more welcoming and kind of I've I've spoken with other clubs as well so I certainly think that changes the foot and you do see a lot more women riding. Because I think in the past, a lot of, it seems to me that a lot of clubs or venues or organisations have thought, well, there's nothing off-putting about us. If people want to come along, we, we'd love them to. But haven't necessarily realised that you need to do something positive. You need to do something different. Absolutely. That's kind of where Veloci Posse, I think, is strongest in that we don't take it for granted that you can put something on and that's it. <laughs> um, and I think that race organisers certainly haven't quite got the message yet that you can't just just put on a race and say, yes, there's a women's race and then people will turn up to it. There's a whole host of reasons why people wouldn't show up to that. The pool of riders is, is smaller at the moment because of the pandemic. But um, one thing that we have done with the club and subsequently here at Hern Hill as well is is race training sessions so this idea that like it's it's such a huge huge leap between like yes I ride my bike and maybe I even ride my bike as a club cyclist but the leap from that into racing is so so big when as a woman you might not have been given those opportunities throughout your life and then as an adult you're more reluctant to put yourself into that position where you don't really know what's happening then seemingly much more risk and it's scary. <laughs> so breaking down that journey into into incremental steps to make it more approachable and kind of say, yeah, well, today we're going to look at this element of bike racing and, and it's a friendly, fun skill session rather than throwing people in at the deep end. <laughs> and it works. That approach really works. And we've shown that by, by putting these things on and then putting on races and, and seeing the fields filling up. However, it obviously takes a lot of effort and time and, you know, that's something that needs investment. Let's talk a little bit about those um, sessions that you're running for non-binary uh, people, um, you know, people who don't um, identify necessarily as 
a particular gender or um, if the barriers are sort of quite high for uh, women um, what are the different barriers there do you think? I think it's just a case of the fact that because cycling is a sport and sports are very regulated in terms of physical performance and stuff like that it, it trickles down in, into just kind of people making assumptions when they when they see people and you know when you do a sport particularly cycling you know you you kind of have to wear clothes a bit tighter so you might reveal your body a bit more and 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 that could be difficult for people who are struggling with their gender identity so really the focus with the skill session so again um velocity have kind of our foundation is is slow skill session so it's removing the kind of strength and speed and the kind of macho-ness aspect of cycling and kind of distilling it down into actually what makes a good bike rider, it's bike handling skills. And you can you can get those in a really kind of non-competitive, fun and friendly environment. So with the non-binary and trans skill sessions, it's sort of taking that concept and then kind of like, again, distilling it down into, okay, well, how do we make this a space where... Um, non-binary trans people are going to feel comfortable and um you know you can't remove every single barrier you can't i don't think you can ever create a safe space because you know we exist in a world where where anyone can come along and do anything but the idea really is is again kind of putting the work in behind the scenes to to talk to people and to let them know that you know this is an opportunity to do something a bit different to learn some new skills and it's going to be in a space with other people who kind of understand the journey that you might be going on or um, are sympathetic to that and again it's just and kind of emphasizing the social aspect of it as well because I mean why do cycling clubs exist it's you know social uh, reasons really you know so you kind of get to know other people who like the same things as you and who want to do the same things so you know it's it's again kind of just going out to people and, and and creating this this space that you hope that they want to come along and be part of with the women's sessions here and the vet sessions at Hearn Hill uh, when they first started you know you might only see a handful of people showing up each time but it's it was a concept worth pushing and and repeating and, and keeping doing because you know people knew that actually you could grow something out of that so yeah it's hard work but hopefully it's worth it in the end because you kind of create this whole new community and space for people to try new things I'll ask you the question which I think you were asked for um, this edition of the magazine as well what one thing would you do to make cycling better <laughs> that's such an impossible question to answer i really struggled with that one when i was asked it before and i think i gave such a nonsense answer i honestly think it just needs to become more societally like wider ex like more acceptable to cycle like it's just the stress of cycling down the street with drivers going too close to you or you know shouting at you and stuff like that just you know of course people don't want to ride a bike if that's if that's the environment that it's in so, you know, that's not even thinking about sports. That's just thinking about cycle as, as a mobility tool, really. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of people that I know that have come to the club had started, you know, just the, using a bicycle to get around. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the gateway, really. <laughs> and the more people that do that, the more people then might be looking for a cycling club or, 
or, or something like that. But yeah, it just, I think, I think that there has to be a lot of work in road inf in infrastructure and driver awareness to sort of make it more acceptable to ride a bike, really. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinawa, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. One of the impacts of the pandemic has been a global change in the way people get around. Most obviously, a significant drop in the number of flights being taken and an upturn in the number of people wanting to try cycling. Will Butler-Adams is Managing Director of Brompton. He believes that the bicycle industry has a huge part to play in shaping a different society post-pandemic. The last 18 months have been far from easy. Where do you start with the impact of COVID on the bicycle industry? Well, first lockdown, complete and utter chaos. Uh, over half of our stores closed. 35% of our staff not in able to make bikes. All of our uh, sort of non-core staff uh, working from home. Orders falling off a cliff, protecting cash. Pretty scary in all fronts but we didn't stop making bikes for a day it just affected our ability to make bikes and one thing we did do was turn down our parts influx rate which has about a three month lag between when we turn it down and it actually turns down because we were so worried about orders so what does that mean sorry for those of us not directly involved in manufacturing when you order parts they don't necessarily come from somewhere down the road. And even if they do come from somewhere down the road, they've got a plan, they've ordered stock. So you can't just say tomorrow, oh, you know, I said I wanted, you know, 500 bits. Can you make that 300? You, you have a schedule and you, you, if you say I want to change it from 500 down to 300, you, you, you have to give them three months notice 
because they've got their stock and they've got their staff and they've built their business based upon a forward order plan. And if you change your forward order plan, you can't do it overnight. So because things were looking so scary, we turned down our parts order influx rate. And the irony of that was that it was on about three months before it started actually turning down. But in three months, as we started coming out of lockdown one, we, we realized that the world wanted bikes and that they didn't want to go on public transport. We did an amazing campaign where we raised money and got bikes into the NHS. Our staff, many of whom never wanted to jump on a bike, were suddenly clamoring for wanting to go on bikes. It was amazing. And then, of course, what happened was orders went gangbusters, but we just turned down the parts influx. Well, when we then went to turn it back up again, so was every other bike manufacturer in the world at the very time when most of the companies making the bits, like us, had third 40% of their staff off and therefore they were in no position to respond to the demand that was thrown at them, let alone get us back to where we wanted to be, never mind supply more bikes than we had originally planned. So since that moment, it has been a real challenge and a knife edge. And initially we had problems with the suppliers to us not being in a position to supply the parts because they didn't have the people or when they did have the people they didn't have the machinery to actually make more parts or the trained staff or more staff to make more parts what's actually happened probably from the beginning of this year so sort of lockdown three is it's got further up the supply chain and what's now become clear is we've now that the factory that might have been making a component for us now has the staff, it now has the machinery, it's all ready to go. But the person who's supplying the raw material, a billet of aluminium or tubular steel, they don't have enough bits because it's no longer the cycling industry, which is the bit we were working at. It's the entire global market of car manufacturers, manufacturers of aluminium frames for houses, the actual commodity world was also locked down for three or four months. There isn't enough of that stuff. And if you can get hold of it, which is hard, it's very, very expensive. That's just problem number one. How much longer do you think? I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next few months? It's going to be 18 months to two years before this sorts itself out. It, there is no quick fix. I haven't even touched on logistics, which has gone completely doolally. Chuck in Brexit, which was a sort of self-fulfilling crisis of our own making. And then um, on top of that, you know, we had to reconfigure our entire factory setup, social distancing, move every machine, workstation, and a whole load of other things on top. It has been um, something of a roller coaster ride, but compared to many businesses, we're very lucky because we've had demand throughout. You know, there are businesses in the entertainment sector that have really, really had a tough time. So, you know, compared to many, we are extraordinarily lucky, but it doesn't mean it's been easy. And that demand appears to be continuing and, if anything, growing, despite the fact, I think, that, that you know, a lot of people think about Bromptons in particular as commuting uh, vehicles, ways of getting to work, and a load of people are just not going to work at the moment. Most people in the world, one, we export 75% to 37 countries around the world. So most of our bikes go abroad. Two, most of the world live in cities. And three, 
ours is a transport, an urban transport solution, which includes commuting. But if you want to go and see friends, if you want to go shopping, if you want to use it um, to go to the park, it's phenomenally useful. And if you don't want to do a journey in public transport, which is what's been occurring, there's been a fear of going on public transport in cities all over the world. Having a product where most of the people live in the world in cities, which is compact, you can unfold it and you have the independence to go where you like in your own sort of bubble of space is incredibly attractive in this current time. And, and combine that with the fact that cities, city mayors, governments have in the last 18 months since we started on this really challenging journey, have, have recognized that and have introduced incredible change to the infrastructure of our cities. I mean, somewhere like Paris, 650 kilometers of segregated cycle lanes, 80,000 car parking spaces taken out of central Paris. I mean, London isn't quite there yet, but it's got more budget for, for investing in, in cycling and cycling infrastructure than it's ever had in the last 50 years. And there is a transformation of focus, seriousness, in terms of what cycling can do for cities. But that's not just COVID, that's we have a climate crisis, we have a health crisis, you know, active travel, air quality, these things are all very, very important. You've been with Brompton um, for a long while now, although not from the very start. Have you worked out for yourself what is the sort of unique appeal of Brompton's? Because, you know, other folding bikes have... Uh, been tried but failed to catch on in anything like the same way so i joined brompton in 2002 there were just under 30 of us we're now about 650 but andrew conceived the bike in 1975 and he spent those formative years obsessing about detail obsessing about the fundamental design, its usefulness, its practicalness, its longevity. And luckily, he didn't get massive funding. He didn't do a sort of like some of these bike hire companies that appeared, Ofo and Mobike, and just splurge Bromptons everywhere because he was learning so much in those first 20, 30 years. And he was obsessed with the product, getting it right. And it's not perfect. It could always be improved. But that time, those millions of hours he spent thinking, evolving, developing that bike have really served us well because that was a platform that was fundamentally a really, really useful product. And actually, in a design perspective, simplicity is really hard to achieve. It takes time to, to, to pare back a design so it's simple. And that's why the product has been successful. It's because it's so flipping useful and it's so thoughtful and handy and so many things that we're persuaded we need in our life. We don't need. We're consuming way too much stuff, most of which is oversold guff. But this product is if you have a need for it, you know, don't buy one if you don't actually have a need for it. But if you have a need for it, which there are, you know, millions of people around the world living in cities who could probably do with something that whizzes around and, 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 and keeps them a little bit fitter and, and makes them feel happy. Um, it's, it's really brilliant. And I say that because 
I use it all the time and I love it. And so do so many of our customers. The basic design of Brompton's does seem to have stayed the same, you know, the fundamental design for, for a very long time. Um, but presumably new materials, new technology are changing it all the time as well. Correct. I mean, it's, and that's been the exciting journey I've been on. I, I rolled in when Andrew had done all hard work and spent a long time 25 years getting the thing off the ground but when I arrived technology really started to kick in you know in the very early days of Brompton when we made a prototype we got laminates of wood and we were all busy you know using little uh, saws and filing it down and trying to you know get a sense of what it might be like because space is an issue you know, we have 3D printers, we have incredibly powerful computers that can do finite element analysis. I mean, over the last 20 years, we've seen the product basically reduce in weight, increase in stiffness, and increase in strength by about 300%. Um, and that's because the technology allows us to better understand and control how we make the bike. When you don't have control, you have to put in bigger safety factors. But the computers have allowed us to have much, much better understanding of what the bike's doing and how it's, um, how, it's, how it's being stressed through its life. And if you can understand that, you can optimize the design and you can improve the stiffness, you can improve the strength. And that's what we've done. And, and a lot of that is because we haven't been a fashion industry. When I joined Brompton, you know, I went to the shows in Vegas and in Taipei and in Friedrichshafen, and it looked like some sort of, you know, closed fashion industry. You know, bikes would appear, and two years later, it was hardtail, softtail, fat wheel, big wheel. You need five years of tens of thousands of customers to really, really understand your product and then learn how you can optimize it and learn how you can apply um, really clever design to make it even better. But bikes would appear in two years later before they even understood what they had. They'd chuck it in the bin and they come out with something new and improved. And that was just not our approach. Our approach is deep engineering to optimize the performance. And that that comes through in the in the long term because you'll see people riding Bromptons that are 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, and they love them because they work. Where do electric motors feature in the sort of future of Bromptons? Well, funny enough, the electric motor features in the very, 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 very first concept of Brompton because what Andrew wanted to invent was a magic carpet. He never managed it. He got as far as the Brompton, and it isn't a magic carpet. But I can tell you, when you put a little electric motor in, it feels a little bit more like a, a magic carpet than, uh, than a pedal bike. What we're interested in is changing how people live in cities, bringing freedom and happiness to cities. And for some weird reason, for the last 50, 60 years, people have forgotten about that. And it seemed to be that the automobile ruled the roost and families and children and air quality and health seem to be just pushed to one side. And that's ridiculous. The cities that people live in should be the most healthy, wonderful, engaging, fascinating, artistic, happy, safe places to live, because that's where most of the world live. And they haven't been. And that needs to change. And you want to include as many people as possible. And the interesting thing about technology has moved forward that, you know, 20 years ago, you could put an electric drive on a bicycle. 
but it would weigh so much that certainly from a folding like portable perspective it was totally impractical and, and not you know you might be able to do it but it wasn't it wasn't a realistic useful product that's changed technology's moved on we spent five years with williams f1 developing a completely unique drive system to try and optimize it just for the brompton to make it powerful enough compact enough and light enough and it's a it's 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 a journey we're on it's a steep learning curve but we've got something that's a joy to use and is and it just opens up the city even more. And you find that, funnily enough, people who have electric bikes, and these are pedal assist, you can't just twist and go, you have to still pedal, are actually doing more cardiovascular than people have a pedal bike. Not because you don't have to put more energy in, you have to put less energy in, but people use them a lot more. They decide that a five-mile journey up a steep hill is, is easy. Whereas before they go, oh, you know, what? I can't be bothered. And, and so even though they're putting in less energy, they're using it so much more that net, net, they're burning more calories. Well, if we can bring that to cities and we can get people doing more distance and more active travel, yippee. So is that part of the key, do you think, to sort of uh, broadening cycling's appeal? I think you need to start with the industry. The industry has been selling to cyclists for the last 50 years. Go to a bike shop, a traditional bike shop. It's techy. It's geeky. You're talking to cyclists. In many respects, that's a bit intimidating. If you think of most, I keep coming back to cities, but most cities in the world, you might have in London, four and a half, five percent of Londoners are cyclists, i.e. somebody who rides their bike two or three times a week. In New York, it's less than one and a half percent. But you then ask the question, how many people in New York know how to ride a bike? Well, that's 90%, 95% in London, similar. So which is the market you want to talk to? The cyclist or the person who knows how to ride a bike? And if you understand that what you're trying to do is engage the person who knows how to ride a bike but isn't, then you need to approach it in the same way that the other retailer does. You need to approach it with a less intimidating, inviting environment. You need to show them themselves in other people doing that activity. So you need to have, you know, if all your marketing is hardcore, super lean, Tour de France cyclists, well, you're, you're, your person's going to look at that picture and, well, I can never do that. I mean, that, that person's unbelievable. You need to make it normal and make it um, unintimidating, inviting, and, 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 and break down the barriers to entry. That's what we can do and have tried to do as a brand. But then at a macro level, you need government to improve infrastructure because the biggest fear, there is a fear, a sort of extraordinary fear of getting on a bike, which isn't real, which, which we, the industry, can adjust. But then there is a real fear that pedaling down a road with a little white line between you and a two and a half ton truck strikes me as a little bit weird. What you want is a segregated cycle lane. And then suddenly you'll find that parents are cycling their children to school, understandably. And that is a government priority and investment, which we're seeing more and more. We need more, more of it more quickly, but at least it's happening. Now, because this is Rouleau magazine, um, I do want to ask about Brompton Racing, because a lot of manufacturers talk about you know, sponsoring world tour teams or whatever, sponsoring Tour de France teams, uh, because it improves the technology of their bikes. Have you learned anything from the people who race Bromptons? Well, do you know what? It's, your customers are magnificent a magnificent bunch 
we have people doing amazing things on Bromptons. The Brompton was conceived by Andrew as a useful urban tool, not, not just to be used in the city, but to allow you to escape the city and go off and explore. It was definitely not conceived as a sort of hardcore racing tool. But we have customers doing incredible things. You know, Paris, Brest, Paris, some of the hardest Audaxes. We race the Brompton in the Brompton World Championships, which, you know, initially we did it um, first race in Barcelona just for fun because everyone takes everything too seriously. We wanted a race because everyone thought because it had little wheels, it couldn't go very fast. And we wanted to disprove that theory because there's something called gears and it allows it to go pretty, pretty fast. What's happened is it's just gone incredible. And we have clubs around the world. We have our customers doing amazing trips. They're pimping their bikes. They're coming up with things, a lot of which we can't put on our bike because they're just not strong enough because they want to go for weight and they don't mind that they do something and it only lasts six months but they're so enthusiastic they want to take every gram out and they want to optimize optimize performance but but inside all of that innovation that our customers are doing there is really really wonderful ideas and insight and of course we we love seeing it we love you know particularly in asia our customers really really do go to town on their bikes and i'm always riding around um in different parts of asia and i spend half my time just peering at the bikes and seeing what someone's come up with and some machined part and titanium bits and optimized gear systems and it's fantastic because it's it's always stimulating us with new ideas will butler adams of uh, brompton thank you for joining us on this uh, ruler conversations my absolute pleasure Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.